millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, how many of you have ever been on Skellig Michael? I think I can safely say that most people who have been on The Rock consider it a privilege and one to treasure. Of course, in recent years, The Rock has been better known for its role in the Star Wars franchise, but that really represents little more than a tiny dot in its rich and varied history. One man who knows all about the Skellig is Robert Harris because he spends up to six months of the year living on it and has done so for the last 34 years. In 1987, Robert answered an advert in the Kerryman newspaper for a caretaker guide to live on the island and he's been there since. Now he's written a fascinating account of the Skellig and his relationship with it. Returning Light, 30 Years on Skellig Michael by Robert L. Harris is published by HarperCollins Ireland and Robert joins us today. Robert, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Mick. Robert, we'll get to your predecessors and, uh, dare I say it, probably kindred spirits, the monks who first occupied the rock in a minute. But first, I'd like to go to the start of your journey. What brought you there? Well, I suppose I was interested in the Skelligs and, by extension, in Irish islands and the monastic foundations there from the time that I was in university. Uh, I was actually in university in America and in England. Uh, but I knew about the Skelligs. I always wanted to go there. And when I was uh, studying in Scotland a few years later, I met my wife, a Kerry woman in Killarney Town. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time in Killarney and, and also in Southwest Kerry. But I always thought I'd have an opportunity to go there. And out of the blue, an opportunity arose one morning. We didn't intend to go there. And off we went. And I was utterly transformed by the place. I thought it was an absolutely spectacular place, uh, not just visually, but also it kind of answered uh, the call of many, many questions I might have had about it uh, in, in, in those previous years. And so I looked to find a way to, to go there. I studied a bit about monastic history when I was in university. And uh, so I was, I was naturally interested in the place. I've lived on islands before. I love the sea. I've been living up on the coast of County Sligo when I first uh, when I first went to the Skelligs. So all these things kind of came together, and I saw the ad in my mother-in-law's house. It was actually not a current Kerry man, I don't believe. I think it was an old one. And just fortuitously, uh, I saw it there in front of me and picked it up and said, "Oh, let's see what we can do about this." 
So that's how I ended up there. That's interesting in itself that, as you say, it was fortuitous. It wasn't that week's Kerry man, but an mm. old one that was lying around. So, and the job was still available, and you went down there. And what is involved in it, Robert? For example, when do you go at the start of your term per the year and what do you spend your time doing there? Okay, well, now we generally go as as early in May as possible. Um, there has been an attempt in recent years to go a little earlier, but often the weather uh, dictates that we end up maybe mid-May, maybe a little earlier, and we stay. Well, this year we left on the 4th of October. And... Um, uh, the job, as it was described originally, was as a caretaker guide. Uh, it's kind of evolved um, over the years. Uh, but basically, I monitor the island along with uh, a staff of five who work with me. And um, we, we, we obviously um, meet the visitors who come and tell them a bit about the island, about the monastic foundation and about the wildlife. Uh, we, we monitor the island. Uh, for its wildlife and its built heritage, and also we monitor access to the island, anyone that might be landing or or, uh, or departing. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the remit of the job. And just a quickly, when you say you monitor access to the island, I mean, I'm aware, and I, I think most people would be aware, there are scheduled trips out there from a number of licensed operators in, I think, Port McGee, Balanskelligs, and I think there's one in Derry Nan. But... Are there attempts by people other than those licensed operators any time to land on the on the rock? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you have, as as you'll know, uh, there there's a lot of sea traffic in those waters, particularly in uh, in good weather. So you will have uh, you will have ribs, you'll have yachts, you'll have other vessels. Sometimes all kinds of vessels. Actually, maybe the navy, maybe a customs vessel. That will uh, that will want to land, and obviously we, given the high profile of the island in recent years, we can't we can't be responsible for everyone landing there anymore. So we we do stick to the permitted boats. As you mentioned, there are there are 15 boats that uh, are given permits, and they're the ones that that bring the visitors out when the sea is fit. And um, basically, um, let's say on average, maybe four or five days out of every seven. Uh, if you took the season as a whole, it will be okay to land there. So uh, in the early morning, I might uh, go down each morning and have a look and, and communicate with the boatman and uh, we'll, we'll make a decision as to whether it's, um, it's fit for travel or not. Oh, so you go down and you'd communicate with them from, from where they're on the mainland? That's right. Yeah. And how, as a matter of interest, how do you communicate from, from the rock? With a good old mobile phone. <laughs> right, you have a signal there. That's how we communicate now. But we, we do have, obviously, traditionally, we've just had the BHF, but um, we talk by phone. And I see that you you said somewhere that one of your favourite places on the rock is that landing area when you go down there early in the morning. That's right. It's a fascinating place. And I guess I say it's favourite because I spend so much time there. Sometimes I might, you know, the sea is, is very peculiar, uh, and particularly in the little Skellig's landing. It can change very quickly. Um, if the situation is uncertain, it might require a fair bit of judging uh, over, let's say, each hour to see uh, will, will it improve, will it disimprove, so that we make sure that people don't uh, don't attempt to land when it's unsafe. But aside from that, 
um, it's a marvelous place where the birds gather. And um, in the early morning, uh, it's it's east facing, so it's full of light. And um, and uh, and when 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 the birds are on the island, which is basically until um, the end of July, the first couple of weeks in August, um, it's full of full of activity down there. So I, it is a spectacular place. So when you go down there early morning, it's you, the birds, the sea, and the sky. That's it. That's it. Yeah, that which is magical. Wonderful way to start the day. I can well imagine. Uh, it's just a thing occurs to me there, Robert, <laughs> the, the people who may be trying to land, it's um, at least you have a better chance of repelling them than perhaps the monks had when the Vikings came calling. Well, I don't like to look at it that way. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and at the same time, we have a very good uh, we have a very good sense of cooperation, uh, particularly with with the boatmen, because uh, obviously they don't want to bring people out when it's not safe either. So it works very well both ways. Yeah, of course. And then, actually, your living conditions, just getting down to the basics for a moment, on the island, you, you, you live in small um, prefabs. That's right. But they're, they're absolutely brilliant little places. I mean, I, I'd say now that um, people would be very envious from all walks of life of, of, our, little, of our little huts uh, stuck as they are on a cliffside over the sea. Um, now, it might not be for everyone. Obviously, there's no running water on the Skelligs. We bring our water out. We always have. And um, we have gas cookers and uh, there's just a composting toilet. So it's not uh, it's not five star, but it works very well. Absolutely brilliant place to spend time. And as you say, the period you go to, Robert, is roughly May to September, October. Within that period, sometimes, is there sometimes very bad weather that um like would you ever get nervous in terms of if the weather got really bad there well you'd be foolish not to to uh to not be aware uh and and take precautions when the sea gets very rough i personally don't mind those conditions um but uh it wouldn't be for everyone there are times when the sea gets very very stormy and really you're kind of restricted to the hut because it's too wild to go out. Yes. Now, another thing, obviously, and you write beautifully about this in the book, is is the, the issue of light. And uh, some people may know already that Southwest Kerry is is um, it's a UNESCO, I think, uh, favoured location in terms of the, the night sky and that sort of thing. But I would imagine out on the Skellig, you're what, you're about eight miles out from shore, there's a particular quality to the light out there. Absolutely. There's there's very little in the way of light pollution, that's for sure. <laughs> and yeah. uh, though, though, mind you, it's it's a, a marvelous place just to to look at the, I suppose, what should I say, the human lights that you can see as well as the stars, because um, you're you're kind of along, you're in the middle of a series of lighthouses. So the Bull Rock is to the south, the Enosteric is to the north, and the Skelligs is there on the island with me. So those lights come on regularly every night. Um, and then um, the trawlers out along the horizon, it's fascinating to watch them come and go. And then you can also see over on the mainland coming up above the glen behind Port McGee, car lights flashing up into the, into the night sky and then coming back down and hiding away. So all of that is on the periphery. But as you, as you mentioned, it's a marvelous place for starlight because there's very little interference and it's there's an unobstructed view of the heavens above that's for sure 
And at any one time, how many of you would be on the island? Generally, well, we try to keep three there at any one time. Now, there are many times when there are more, um, because on, from Monday to Friday, there's a crew of men who come out and do work on the island. At the, at the, at the current time, they're doing work, um, re restoration work on the old lighthouse, which is further along the road uh, at, at more or less at the same level uh, that the huts are on. But um, uh, on the weekends and other times, it's just the three guides that are there. Yeah, and another thing as I noticed in, in the book about the light, w one of the cells, and people will know there are a series of cells up near the top of the rock, which is wh where the guides bring visitors up. But in, in one of the cells, that the, there's um, there's a light that strikes through in September, around September, one of the larger cells. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, that's something that I've been observing ever since I was there. It's a fascinating thing. Um, I guess I always felt uh, and I don't, I don't think I'm unique in this, that obviously the monks didn't just put the cells willy-nilly in a haphazard way on their platform when they built it. They, um, there would have been a rhyme and reason for everything put there. And um, in, in, in midsummers, in May, uh, in the early morning, the light fills the, uh, both the oratory and the large cell, what we call cell A, is the largest cell at the western end of the monastery. And then I noticed one of my first years there that there's a window in this very large cell. And as the sun is declining in late September, the light comes directly through that window and it gradually climbs up along the opposite wall and it actually fills the space between two lentils right over the door. It's a, it's a similar thing that you might be aware in a more dramatic fashion happens in Newgrange and, and other places, um, uh, other prehistoric sites. And um, so I, I began to notice that this happens on Skelligs. And um, it's fascinating to me, of course, because the monks looked at that. The monks organized that. I'd be very surprised if they didn't. It's, it took a lot of effort to organize the cell so that and they would have known, of course, in a much more, um, what should I say, innate way or, or just almost um, instinctive way about the movement of the heavens, as people used to so long ago. And um, so they, 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 they designed these cells, obviously, to incorporate the movement of the sun and, and, the, the, star, and, and, and um, the heavenly bodies. Now, how much they did that, I have absolutely no idea. And I think probably we have not a lot of knowledge about exactly how this was done. But I do know that in this particular cell, every September, because I've watched it for the whole time I've been there, uh, that, um, that the light comes up and it rests in that cell. And it gradually moves a little bit northward through the, from about the 20th of September on through the Feast of St. Michael at the 29th. And then by the 1st of October, it stopped, it, it's moved too far north and it won't fit there any longer. It's fascinating, as you say, and 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 the fact that uh, in our likelihood it was designed that way. And, and the other thing that strikes about it is, you know, the, the, the monks, we'll talk about them now, but they were, I think it was in the 9th and 12th century around that time, we're going back guts of a thousand years and they designed that like that, they experienced it like that. And whereas 
a massive part of the world has changed irrevocably in every possible way since then. Inside in that cell, every September, you're experiencing precisely what they would have experienced all those years ago. That, well, that's, that is the thing. That's the thing that's, that struck me. And, you know, obviously, uh, I just, I've just seen this. I don't know. I wouldn't presume. Uh, I'm not a trained archaeologist. I'm, I wouldn't presume to, to make uh, any further comment about it, except that this happens. And I'm sure that it happened when the monks were there. It had to. It's the same sun coming up, <laughs> coming in the same direction every year. And, uh, um, and it had to be a part of their, um, it, it had to influence them. And it had to also be um, designed that way. So it must have been a part of their whole view of the cosmos, the view of, of just what was around them. It put them in touch with, with uh the wider movements of the sun and the stars and whatever, uh, in a way that prehistoric uh, uh, monuments do, like Newgrange. But obviously, these these notions and these concerns didn't just vanish. They still became part of, of people's lives and people's understanding later on. Now, we don't really do that anymore, but I mean, obviously, people design their buildings and their houses in a specific way. They design it so that light is maximized or minimized so in a way we haven't given up on that altogether but we don't we don't use it in the same way this must have had some kind of connection with their religious beliefs um you know with the returning of with god providing them with the light again with god protecting them through the winter all of these all of these notions must have been very important to know what's really happening subscribe to the irish examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe and touching on the history, Robert, um, just briefly, when did the monks go there? Uh, why did they go there? How many of them went there? Well, we don't know these things precisely, but it's said that Skelligs was probably inhabited by monks by either the 6th or the 7th century. We don't have any documentation until the 8th century, but that's not unusual. And so it's believed, obviously, Monasteries were being built along the, the coastline of Ireland even as early as the 5th century uh, and the early 6th century, like particularly up in the Aran Islands and in different places. There were island monasteries all up and down the coast. And uh, so it's believed that they came around about that time. We don't know how many people came out there. The beginnings are in some ways the most mysterious thing about the Skelligs to me because once the monastery was built, you can almost imagine life going on there. But it's the idea of people coming and deciding to stay and what kind of habitations did they have at the beginning? Because it must have taken a very long time to build anything like what we see there now. So a lot of speculation is made about it, but we don't really know. And I don't know how one will build, uh, really. So a handful of men, let's say, came there. And it's believed that probably the community was not very large, maybe about a dozen, and that they stayed until about the 12th century. And the main reasons why things changed is because there were big social changes in Ireland then. That's about the time the Normans came to Ireland. It's about the time that the Irish church came under influence of the big, huge monastic movement, which had been taking place in, in Europe. And the big houses like the Augustinians and the Cistercians were coming to Ireland. And also, beyond that, there is a suggestion that the weather deteriorated a little bit in the 12th century. So for all of these reasons, 
That's why it seems like instead of Skellig Michael, the 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 Abbey, the Augustinian Abbey and Ballinskelligs became the main monastic site in in that area. After that, that's right. They came ashore to Ballinskelligs, and that's where Ballinskelligs obviously gets its its name as well. People yeah. might know it as, as 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 the beach there. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. And I was under the impression that there's this ledge there that some of them went out there to do even further penance than they saw as their everyday lives and living there. But I, I may be wrong. Did one of them actually live out on this ledge for a while? Or is a thought? Obviously, we don't know for a fact. We don't know this. Uh, on the other, Skellig, Skellig Michael has two peaks. There's the lower peak, which rises about 600 feet, and that's where the monastery is. And then there's a valley, and then it, the island rises to another much, much steeper, more precipitous peak, peak which we call the South Peak. And up near the top of the South Peak, there are three little terraces, tiny terraces, room enough only for like a very small cell. And um, one of these is what, what's called the Oratory Terrace. And there are ruins, very low ruins of a small structure there, which was an oratory. And then around the other side of the peak, there are two smaller uh, terraces, again, their use is not 100% certain. It has been suggested in past times that maybe things could be grown there, but no one really knows for sure. But it all points to a superhuman effort to actually build up in such an almost inaccessible place. So they went to a lot of trouble at some stage, probably it's suggested maybe about halfway through the life of the community, maybe about the ninth century or so. But again, no one's certain. Um, that these terraces were built. In the past, it's always been called the Hermitage. And there was definitely a tradition in Irish monasteries of people living apart from a community as a hermit or as an ascetic in connection with the monastery, but also wanting a person having a desire or a requirement to live alone. Now, whether that happened on Skellix full time or not, or whether people went up there sort of for um, transitory kind of semi-permanent stations. We don't know this, but it wouldn't be unusual, and it's certainly possible that someone could have lived up there on their, on their own once that was built, um, serviced from the monastery below. Now, that tradition you're talking about really relates to a little bit later. Because those structures were there, uh, and because it was seen as such a difficult place in later years, when pilgrims started to come to the Skelligs, once the monks had, had removed to Ballinskelligs, all throughout 13, 14, 15, 16th century, let's say, um, this tradition of going up to that peak as, as a pilgrimage, as doing the Stations of the Cross, going up to where the little hermitage was, and then on, up a little bit further to where there was a slab stretched out over the ocean. And the, the slab was only about two or three feet wide, very knobbly and maybe about 15 feet long, and it went down at an angle of the sea. And at the very end, there was a fork. And in that fork, until the 1970s, there was a slab with a cross inscribed. And the final act of penance was to crawl out on that stone and kiss the cross. And apparently lots of people did it until maybe the 18th century or so. So Obviously, those people that went out there obviously had a strong sense of faith in what they were doing and that it was necessary for expiation for whatever they, they felt guilty for because they, they certainly put themselves at hazard climbing out there when, when that pilgrimage existed. 
Yeah, just a lot more hazardous than kissing the Blarney Stone. Ah, anyway. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. And the term spiritual, Robert, I think is probably overused and possibly abused. Um, but out there, do, do you get a sense of peace, a sense of uh, oneness with what's around you? Or is that being a bit grandiose? That's not being grandiose at all. There are terms that are bandied about, as you say, a lot these days. And you have to be careful because people people use them in all kinds of ways. But it's an, it's inevitable that you you go to the Skelligs and, first of all, well, the first thing to say is that you're there on a little island. Uh, it's, a, it's a mountain, really, basically, a mountaintop sticking up out of the sea. And you go to the top and you see these cells that were lived in so long ago. They're more or less intact, um, and you, you you are confronted with a very different vision of the world than the than the normal one we are all used to in the 21st century technological world. Wherever you are, it's more or less homogenized, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, particularly in the West, and um, so you you have a direct contact. You look into the dark doorways. You see places where people made a conscious decision to come out and live at such a remote place so long ago. And I think, not just myself, but I've seen it with other people, you feel an instant kind of affinity um, with, with, there's a common humanity that brings people out to a place like that. Everyone in them has some kind of yearning to look at life differently, to live a different kind of life, to see life in wider terms. You're talking about, say, the dark sky down in Southwest Kerry. Well, it's set aside so that people can see the stars in the way they can't say in a city. And in a way, Skellig's is kind of kind of responds to that call too. You can't help but feel um, a different sense of your your place in the world. You can't help but question your place or what you do in your life or you know uh, sort of make an assessment of your life story when you are surrounded by, by those in, in that setting. Yeah, I can well believe it's just, something just strikes me there. I presume you'd never go up to the settlement after dark. It would be pretty. Uh... I have gone. There's not something I do all. Yeah, yeah. I think it's 618 steps there are all the way up. And um, tragically, I think, unfortunately, there was an accident there a few years ago. Somebody somebody died. But I suppose you'd be well used to um, to the terrain, so to speak, anyway, from, from the, the experience. Well, that you, wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to take it lightly. You wouldn't want to take it lightly at all. You want to be very, very careful. Um, it's, it's absolutely. We have had, um, we have had um, fatalities and, and serious accidents on the island, and they certainly changed um, my and I'm sure all, all my colleagues' view of just um, precariousness of the situation there. But you'd be foolish uh, not to be extremely careful at all times walking around the island because all it takes is just one. One simple little little slip, and and you can be in a lot of trouble. So um, no, you need to be you need to be aware all the time. Uh, once you basically leave the hut, of of the dangers involved. Yeah. How did the Star Wars phenomenon impact on you and your colleagues? Well, it did. Um, obviously, there was a big influx of visitors after after that. Uh, I think. To a certain extent, the influence is waning now, uh, but there's no doubt that um, that it's put an extra pressure on the numbers coming to the island. 
So we do have a permit system and we do have regulations for, for the numbers of people coming out. Um, you know, um, it's it, it, the whole idea of, of using the island commercially is a, is a, is a very controversial question. The island is, it, it's a, it exists in a very delicate balance when we're talking about the dangers there, but aside from dangers to humans, um, you have, it, it, first of all, it's a, a very, very important island for wildlife. You have hundreds of thousands of seabirds, and that is their only home. And some of them are protected. And um, we know from the way climate change is happening, we know from what's happening in the world today, that sometimes colonies of seabirds can be wiped out very quickly and often for no apparent reason. And we're only really coming to understand a lot about the lives of seabirds just really in the last couple of decades. So there's that, but then there's also the built heritage, which is absolutely unique. And once um, a particular stone is worn out, once a certain amount of pressure is put on a building stone and it cracked and has to be replaced, obviously then, uh, then more and more, the island becomes less, there's less of the original island there. So it's, and everybody's aware of this. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a, I must say, I think there's generally a, a concern for, for these things throughout Southwest Kerry because people obviously know of the Skelligs as a, a place that is very important to the economy of the area. Everyone knows that. But at the same time, I think, I think particularly at this day and age, everyone is aware of its fragility too and of how it has to be minded and cared for. Absolutely. And you mentioned the birds and as I understand it, the huge colony of birds there, they migrate south um, at some stage. Generally speaking, are you there when that happens and, and is it noticeable? and Does it change the, the, the atmosphere there? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it, there's a dramatic change. Uh, when we go out, most of the birds are there. So the island is full of life. Uh, the you know, chicks are hatching underneath your feet. Uh, the, the ground is literally alive with activity. And this then by, by the second half of August, particularly on into September, the island becomes eerily quiet. You do get to see other birds that you don't normally see. You're much more aware of, of kind of the, the rare chuffs, for instance, or the falcons and things like that. But the, the big seabird colonies are gone and it's very noticeable. The island is quiet. You've been at it 34 years, Robert. I mean, something like that. Do you come, say, the the, the begin the early months of the year, you're at home in Leitrim, January going into February, going into March. Do you find yourself itching to go or do you find yourself sometimes wondering, should you still go? Do you know that kind of way? How how do you, as I say, you've been at it quite a while now. Yeah, there's a bit of both. Um, I, obviously, the island is very much part of me. I've, I've spent a, a, a lot of my life there. Um, so it's very important to me. Um, and at the same time, so is my, my, my life at home, uh, my life with my family. And um, so they're both extremely important and they're connected. They have to be connected. They have been for a long time. Um, I, I guess I have, a, because I've been there so long, I, have, I feel like I have a vested interest in the place. And so I, um, you know, but at the same time, uh, I was talking to someone earlier about this. There are a lot of unique things about the Skelligs and the experience of going out to the Skelligs, particularly for any of us in, in the world we live in now. And um, these things, to a certain extent, can be apprehended 
in just a few minutes. You see it, I see it happening a lot of the time by visitors who arrive and sort of are just pulled over by the place. And the same experience are really only just extended and maybe deepened if you spend a lot of time. So the reason I'm saying that is that after my first year, I left and I remember looking at the Skelligs and I thought, I'll probably never go there again. And uh, here I am going back 34 years later. And every time I leave, even during the summer, and I'm sure it's the same for everyone else, there's a little niggling feeling that, you know, I might not return. Who knows what might happen? So I think uh, there's a bit of both of that. It's, it's always a charmed place. I'm fortunate to be there. But, you know, like all things, uh, it won't last forever. No. And finally, I suppose it would have struck a lot of people, the, 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 the solitude that's there, the, the sense of confinement, perhaps, in one way. But it's, it's something a lot of people might relate easier to following the, the, the pandemic and what people have experienced there. And also, you'd have to say, probably the safest place one could have been during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> or that or County Leitrim. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I'm, well, where I live in County Leitrim, which is a very remote place as well um, uh, in the countryside. But, um, uh, and I'm sure people who live in Southwest Cary felt, uh, at least a lot of them felt relatively safe and, and fortunate as well, as opposed to city dwellers uh, being locked in and locked down. Um, but yes, uh, there. I, I'd say a lot of people have experienced over the last um, couple of years with our with our problems with COVID um, something of the un- unsettling aspect of being alone and and the reflection that it's that it's um, it's brought about in a lot of people as to first of all, I mean the obvious things that you read about every day about how they work what kind of commitment they want to make to their job, how they want to use their time, all these kind of questions come up. Absolutely. And as you say, there, there, there can be two sides to it. There, There is that uh, satisfying, perhaps, opportunity for reflection, and it can be unsettling for some people. But I have to say, it's a fascinating experience and a fascinating read, Robert, um, your thank book. You. And thank you very much for joining us today. The book is entitled Returning Light, 30 Years of Life in Skellig Michael by Robert L. Harris. Just to not mistake you from your namesake, the thriller writer. That's There's right. a lot of thrilling stuff in this, I have to say, in, in its own right. Robert, thank you. Well worth to read, folks. Okay, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Fernan. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to pick up your digital subscription to the Irish Examiner for some quality journalism. We'll see you soon. Bye.